Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me Stories from the Stage. In this podcast, we're taking a look at Japanese Canadian artists all across Canada to take a look at some of their ideas and thoughts. So, welcome back to the theater of your mind, located here between your ears, wherever you are around the world. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Yoshie Bancroft. Who is a performer, actor, writer, producer, and works with Universal Limited Theater to bring histories and stories that may otherwise be missed? I'll invite you now to take your seats, take a couple deep breaths. If it's available to you, close your eyes as the lights fade in this theater space. And without further ado, Lights up on Yoshie Bancroft. My name is Yoshie Bancroft, and these are my stories from the stage. It's quiet, gentle, warm morning light. Bird song softly floats and echoes from far. It's dreamy. The air is thick and wet. Tap. A tap, tap, increasing gently, steady beating on big fat leaves. Birds fall away and take cover, and the shower swells. It's a proper storm, and you feel cozy and sheltered with the others, and waiting for something to happen. And the electricity buzzes inside your belly. There's deep comfort in a good storm. The flashes of light precede the low, rolling thunder. It continues. It's too loud, and your connection to the other 12 people dissipates. Suddenly, the sound is isolating. A large crack, and the power snaps out. You squint through the blackness to see what the others are doing. You're spaced out in straight back wooden chairs. Slowly, it gets quiet again as the rain softens. The bird song comes back in the dark. Something wet expands on the floor, moisture threatening your bare toes. You lift your knees. You wait for a long time, feet up. A quick patter of wet feet smacking on hardwood, moving too quick, running too fast. You can't help imagining a slip. You shift, uncomfortable, holding your breath. <laughs> A voice cuts through your uncertainty. This isn't what I planned. You can hear her beaming as she says it. A match hurriedly strikes, snaps, tries again. Oh, come on. She gets it and lights a candle. Several other candles catch light. Magic. The warm, gentle morning light resumes and we are very far away. It's not quite right, but familiar enough to dismiss that it's unsettling. She's there, sopping wet, big goofy grin. The electricity that buzzed in your belly stands at your surface. Thanks for coming. I'm so relieved you made it. I've been waiting 
She glances at her wrist, no watch. 836 days. Let's start. I'll, I'll pitter patter my way out here. Wow. What Hi, a, everyone. What a space. Thank you. Yoshi. Oh, I can smell it. I can feel it. Oh, I'm so ready for this conversation. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh. I'm so excited for this and in such a lovely place with the bird song behind us. The candles are still around us, yeah? I believe so. Ah, beautiful. Uh, <laughs> well, I, why don't you tell these fine 12 or so people here? Um, <laughs> I suppose my first question for you is with, with all the different things you do, uh, so you, a lot of site-specific work, what invigorates you? What gets you going with the stories you tell? Um, with, with Universal Limited, uh, a lot of our work focuses on stories or histories that are often overlooked. We're interested in investigating uh, and finding finding narratives that that don't often get to be portrayed on stage, and that's a big part of our work is is making space for those narratives. Mm. And one of those narratives, for sure, is the Japanese problem. Yeah. So uh, our work for the past few years has centered around Japanese problem. We went into research. It was 2017, summer of 2017, I believe. No, it was 2016. <laughs> They're all running yeah. together at this point. Yeah, it runs together a little, <laughs> but um, regardless, it was it was a long development period. And uh, yeah, we ended up performing the show at Hastings Park the actual location of where Japanese Canadians were were held uh, before being moved to internment camps in the interior. And that's where we met. Uh, we met out in Caslo. That would have been 2016. Um, okay, yeah, 2016. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was performing yeah. Sansei, the storyteller out there, mm. and, and you two came through uh, research researching a plenty. <laughs> yes, yeah, we we hit up the Caslo archives. They were really great. Um and going to the Langham even like mm. what a what a, a great artistic organization in that community. Um they were they were producing your show at That's that right. time. Absolutely. Really see it. Shout really out great. to the Langham. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So um, tell me a bit about a uh, bit more about the Japanese problem. We're, we're in this, I mean, very different setting than where we are right now. But we're, we're in this, what was once a horse barn kind of atmosphere. The show takes place within those very same stalls where the animals were held. And so when we did do the show in those stalls, um, you can imagine that there's still like ripe with the dirt of the animals from the summer and, you know, smelling strongly and smelling foully. And mm. the the setting really does lend to the experience of the show. I remember my aunt told me stories about, uh, about being there in the stalls and mm. that experience. So that's uh, ah, goosebumps already. Um, 
have you always had such a, a, a relationship with your uh, the Japanese heritage? I I would say it's something that I more or less found actually later in my life. I mean, I'm 34 now, and uh, I think when I was around my mid to late 20s, I realized that there was a big section of Canadian history that I knew very little about, and it was really um, disappointing to myself. I think it was through the creation of Japanese Problem that I really found the JC community, um, which has been really important to me and in, important to the development and life of the show, I think. I should mention uh, that I don't have a family connection to the internment. Um, a lot of the collaborators that we've worked with do have that family connection. My uh, desire to create the show and to share the history comes from that. Um, like basic shame as a Canadian in not knowing the history. Mm, I mean, it's such a powerful seed is disappointment and shame to then start an artistic process. Uh, how does that, how does that get nurtured and, and flower when, when that's the, when that's the seed? It's such a, such a motivate, like a, a driving force. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and I think for a, at least a couple of years, it was just a seed. It was like, I have an idea and I see an opportunity to, to share a history and I don't quite know yet how to make that happen or, or who I can ask for help. And it was really interesting to, to, find, to find the community in that journey and to find the people that were interested or 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 wanted the artists that wanted to share their story um, mm. and be part of the project be part of the the show as you speak about it, it it feels like an could be overwhelming the the sense of uh morality obligation um wanting to do it justice so what were the steps of empowerment that that enabled you to keep moving forward a lot of it is rooted in connection with the JC community. The show wouldn't have been able to happen without that. Mm -hmm. And when Joanna and I embarked on like the research phase of the show, and then it really started from community and it started from the initial, the initial contacts within the community. It's interesting because I think that like even over the course of the research, development, performance, and now in a phase of being able to remount the show and tour it, the, the weight of the responsibility of doing justice to, justice for the history um, is quite prevalent. I think that it became clear in the, the second time we remounted the show at, at Hastings Park that I presented as the face of the show and I and I it felt important to me to remove that I, I didn't feel comfortable that I should be at the center of it anymore and so I feel really great and I think the whole team does about like taking a step back into a different role and having a young JC artist to play the role that I played and they have 
their own story to tell that's important to tell. And so I think that, yeah, the weight of, of an, and sort of obligation of doing justice to this history uh, continues. Was there a moment in development that like a, a bit of a, an aha moment where something clicked and you knew the show was going to work? Yes. Um, we did our first sort of like te uh, teaser version of the show at the Powell Street Festival. Um, mm -hmm. And we just did like a short 15 minute version and it was so fantastic and also painful to do, but also granted us this understanding of what we had and the idea that we had that the show would stand alone by itself was not, we realized that wasn't actually true anymore. I think that the show was actually sort of part of a larger conversation and it couldn't exist by itself. It had to exist with conversation that is now built into the structure of, of the show. And we were finding that like people after the show was done, weren't ready to leave the space. They needed to sit for a bit and absorb and digest. And um, we can't do the show without having the conversation, the digestion afterwards. That would be um, irresponsible to send people out into the world and be like, okay, thanks for coming. Off you go. Like we needed to sit with people. And so the second time we did the show at Hastings Park, we hired a mental health professional to be there for um, the after show talks just on hand is like a mental health first aid person in case, you know, folks are having a difficult, a difficult time or even to like steer and guide the conversation a little bit when needed. That's such a lovely offering. That's great. It's, it's really, really important in, in big, difficult work like this. <laughs> yeah. And perhaps it speaks to the desire that people feel to talk, to communicate. Mm. I think that there has been so much silence perhaps on the subject for so long. And, and if there is some opportunity to share a memory or a story or a feeling, they often will want to. And if they don't want to do it vocally or physically, they can you know, do it with a note. Mm -hmm. Uh, that really resonates. Um, is that something upon reflection that that you experienced uh, in not seeing yourself, your stories on stage? Oh, I imagine so. And to some degree, I mean, I wonder, I wonder about that because I wonder like when I reflect on the times when I've seen a show that I've felt so incredibly seen or or move to the point of wanting to to connect with the folks on stage or to to stay and talk yeah you know what it it is that way I think I mean I'm it's it's maybe like a silly reference but I remember going to Crazy Rich Asians this big blockbuster <laughs> movie that came out a couple summers yeah. ago yeah we went to the movie theater and I remember feeling like quite emotional and moved at the end of the movie and it wasn't that like the content of the movie was particularly mind-blowing but I think it was uh, seeing Asians in leading roles and seeing 
that that might be possible for myself one day or for us one day. I had a similar experience with Always Be My Maybe, which, oh, which is yeah. a Netflix flick that's, yeah, like, you said, like it's, it's fine, it's well written, you know, it's, it's nothing to blow you away, but just the story through that lens. It's, it's a deeper emotional connection that you feel it, you resonate with it, even though it's a story that we've seen before. But the fact that it's a story of someone that yeah. looks like me in the mirror is going through it, mm -hmm. it resonates in a weird way that has never been a, you know, it's, it's the, kind of the first time to be able to vocalize it. See, and seeing yourself reflected on stage or in film is, I think, so important mm. for your own, I don't know, like encouragement or aspirations or, you know, to know that you can keep going, um, perhaps in some twisted way. <laughs> you mean in the in the art? In the art, in the yeah. Artwork. And to know that there mm. is there is space in the future, or there potentially might be space in the future for you to tell your own stories or be the center of your own story on stage. And it or, and it doesn't have to be about the fact that you are Asian, you mm. know, like. Mm -hmm it would be really great one day to see BIPOC folk can play the leading roles on stage and it doesn't have to be a story about their own oppression mm. or marginalization. Because so often it's like when black indigenous people of color are featured on stage, they are in relation, their characters are in relation to whiteness. I mean, I suppose that's changing a little bit now. I think that it's it's something that we might get stuck in or that larger institutions perhaps get stuck in. <laughs> have you have you felt their stuckness as you were going through the institutions? Well, I read okay, I read an article from Kim Harvey. And I think it was like around the time when she was touring Kamloopa, sort of like a coming of age story about uh, young indigenous women. Um, I saw the show at the cult and it was gorgeous and felt empowering and wonderful and like a celebration. And um, in this article, Kim Harvey had spoken to the fact that like throughout her career, she had always played broken indigenous women on stage and she'd never been given the opportunity to play a strong, empowered indigenous woman. And so that got me thinking like, oh yeah, how do we, how do we portray marginalized people within art and within storytelling and if it's always speaking to that their oppression like is that an accurate reflection of our society um there are plenty of strong um intelligent BIPOC folks out there like do their stories all have to be related to their own marginalization. I don't think so. In this conversation, to turn a, a bit of a lens on our connection to the Japanese Canadian community, 
do, do we have a unique role recognizing that our POC-ness are, are, is meant in, in the structure of the word of BIPOC or IBPOC, we're meant to come secondary to the Black and Indigenous voices. So, so how do you feel our, our role relates to this, this new world, this new conversation? I think it's, it's complex and nuanced, but, and I'm still trying to figure out my own place in it. The thing that I've been sort of going through over the course of the past few months um, with the BLM movement, I feel like I need to examine myself in the ways that I have, in the ways that I can do better, um, but also perhaps serve as some kind of buffer because from what I hear and what I read, it sounds like Black and Indigenous folks are tired and exhausted and the fight has been consistent and, and hard for, a, for forever. Um, and so as a POC and as someone who's half white, perhaps my, my position is to be the buffer and to, to take the hits and to have the hard conversations and to preserve, help preserve my black and indigenous friends energy um, so that they can persevere. I'm still like figuring it out. And I think I do fall into the, the sort of um, paralysis of, of not wanting to do something wrong and, and wanting to be right and, and do well. But perhaps if, perhaps if we, or if I were to just succumb to the fact that I will mess up, <laughs> then I can be brave for my like black and indigenous um, collaborators and colleagues so that I can serve as that buffer. <laughs> that resonates in, in such a deep way. Um, I really love the idea of, of radical self-forgiveness, uh, of knowing even, even what we've been speaking about, I feel really connects us to this conversation in a really unique way. And, and that um, this, this, the permission and, and the readiness to forgive myself when I do misstep has, has been the only thing that's allowed me to move forward in this conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, in a, in a similar way, I feel like being half white, I've, I've been able to lean on that side for quite a bit in my social life and in my artistic career to get to where I have been. That, that that has been available to me that and it's not available to everyone. And I feel like it's opened a lot of doors. I have a very, I don't know, uh, granola kind of feel to me that has really allowed me <laughs> you know, a foot into some of these rooms, into some of these conversations um, that, as you say, now I feel compelled. Again, we're going back to that, that seed of, of the driving force of, of responsibility um, to be a buffer, to be, to be a, a voice, to, to call in people, to question practices, and, and to examine what we're doing 
wrong? What could be improved? And yeah, I really appreciate, uh, as you say, your reflections. And you taught, you spoke earlier about um, in your mid to late 20s, starting to come to some of these ideas, uh, some of these political uh, factors, the Japanese internment, things like this. Um, what was your self-identification like before that time? I, I grew up, I spent my childhood in Papua New Guinea, uh, which is very far away. Um, <laughs> it's in the- it's I did not know this. Yeah, it's a small- Wow. Or small-ish island just north of Australia in the South Pacific. And I remember being about 12 years old, preteen, coming to can coming back to Canada because I was born here and thinking, okay, <laughs> I'm I'm going back to Canada. Like maybe I'll try out my white name, Tara. <laughs> and that was my first foray into understanding, I think, understanding my self-identity. Cause I I guess my thinking at the time was like, okay, there's more white people in Canada and I have a white name and like maybe that will be easier for them to say and and learn and and I don't know also you're a preteen and you want to fit in and you don't want to be different or look different or anything different you just want to be the same as everyone else um and so that phase when I was Tara lasted about two years um I think in grade nine or so I was like oh there are other Taras in this high school. <laughs> I think I've had enough. I think I'm going back to being Yoshie. <laughs> um, wow. So, and I didn't think too much of it at the time. I was just like, what am I doing? I'm not Tara, I'm Yoshie. Like, mm. let's, let's be honest with yourself. Um, but when I think about it now, I wonder if it was sort of a subconscious understanding of like trying to lean into my whiteness and knowing that that would give me some kind of acceptance within this new country and culture. Um, and then realizing that I couldn't really hide who I actually am. And the name that I've used my whole life is, is Yoshie. And I feel most comfortable being Yoshie. <laughs> I think that's such phenomenal emotional intelligence as a 12 and 14 year old. <laughs> well, I came to that thought later in life. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. But, uh, you know, that, that gut feeling that drove you there. Uh, that's, I feel so wise. I mean, I think you, you met me as Mark. I mean, that is my given in the order of my given name. Mark is my given name. Mm -hmm. um, and I've come to Kunji in the past five to maybe 10 years here in certain communities. And as you speak about, you know, in the same way, there's so many other marks, uh, uh, but Kunji, that's me, you know? Yeah. That feels, that feels good. Yeah. Like, like there's something in me that's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that. Ah. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I commend your early emotional <laughs> intelligence. And uh, it took me decades longer than you to, to, <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to feel comfortable in that. So I commend you in that, I in mean, that journey. 
it's a work in progress to be sure. I think that it was, it wasn't until a friend of mine pointed this out that I realized that uh, when I perform on stage in almost any role that doesn't specifically say Asian or Japanese Canadian, I imagine myself by default white, which is sort of a strange, like, psychological realization for myself. I'm like, oh yeah. When I played Elizabeth Bennett in Shamanus, I was like, no, I, I'm playing a white Elizabeth Bennett. I mean, I, it, it's, a, it's a curious thing to unpack, I think. Can it just be Yoshie playing Lizzie? <laughs> That's a fantastic question. I mean, let's unpack a little bit at least, shall we? I've heard recently the contextualizing of moving away from the terminology half white and half Japanese Canadian. Uh, You have two kind of full cultures that are interweaving in you. And and that is an interesting example that, I mean, in, in a weird superpower kind of way, Yoshie can absolutely play Elizabeth Bennett, <laughs> but let's see Elizabeth Bennett try and play Yoshie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but I, I've absolutely felt similar of, of stepping into roles that, and you don't think twice. No, it's, it's yeah. like learned, I don't know, subconsciously learned from when you're young that like the default is white, I guess. The I default is white. Oh boy, so much to unpack. Uh, this is a bit of a curveball for you. Okay. Um, <laughs> and now with the context and the filter of this colorful casting, do you have any dream roles that you would like to play as Yoshie? I mean, as a Japanese Canadian performer, actor? I think it, it's funny because that's a question that like every actor should have an answer to. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't I don't know the answer to that yet and maybe it's because it's something that I want to create and I haven't created it yet maybe the dream role that I want to play is not necessarily on stage but is as a leader in a theater company who is an advocate for change within the current theater ecology and reimagines a future that's different from what it is now. Maybe that's it, you know? That's that's a beautiful role. (laughs) I absolutely could see you in something like that. Oh, (laughs) that's a huge compliment. (laughs) I'm going to put it in my pocket for confidence later. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you can listen back and listen to it over and over. But uh, speaking of the theater ecology, uh, this is uh, during this large pandemic pause, it feels like now is a time to really take stock and reflect on our ecology. Um, What are some of the some of the places to shine light on? What is what is theater really? um, What are the bright spots of theater for you right now? I feel like it's the like the next generation of theater makers or the the folks that are just like a little bit younger than me that are coming out with out of theater school with energy and drive and ambition and activism and and demanding that change. It's so inspiring for me to see 
Um, and it makes me want to do better as an artist and theater maker and, and re-envision the ways that we collaborate and give credit and structure organizations. Um, there, there are new models emerging, I think. I hope that like our theater company can continue to, to navigate these new models and incorporate them into our own organization. But yeah, it's really, really inspiring to see so there's, uh, as you've spoken about, there, there's a lot that the kind of the JC, the Japanese Canadian community, uh, uh, that perspective has offered, I mean, both of us. Uh, can we look at what you, what's your experience with some of the, the costs of being Japanese Canadian? Um, well, something that I've experienced over the course of, of my career thus far and, and auditioning and whatnot is is um, being asked to lean into my Japanese-ness. Um, and sometimes in a stereotypical way that feels icky or, or wrong or not necessarily like truthful to who I am as a person. Um, I don't speak with a Japanese accent, but I have been asked several times to audition with a Japanese accent um, or even in direction to to be to be more Japanese. I mean, whatever that means. But I think that the sad part of it is that I know what that means. There was an instance where I had an audition for a company here in Vancouver and uh, I was having a hard time like understanding what the director was asking of me and I couldn't quite get a grasp on what they were going for. And uh, at one point the direction was to be like a Japanese girl. And then mm -hmm. he sort of physically made his body smaller and cast his eyes down and, and was like, get it, do you understand? And I'm like, yeah. I get it. I understand. Yeah, I can do that. <clears throat> and, and in that moment, it felt wrong and it felt stereotypical and degrading and disrespectful to my Japanese-ness. And all of it just felt so many complicated emotions that I could not express in that moment because here I am with an established director and a reader and I don't want to be wasting their time and I potentially want to work for this company in the future and so several factors um leaning on me and I do the thing I do it the way he wants it because I know what that means and then I leave the audition thankfully my partner was waiting in the car for me um and I just like I wept because I was, I felt so disappointed in myself that I had not spoken up, that I had not spoken up. And um, I think about that and I, and I replay it and I wonder what I would have said in that moment, or I wonder how I could have advocated for myself and I also defend myself in that moment like it's complicated I'm like yeah but I didn't do it because of this and this and this and 
And then I think, but I should have done it because of this and this and this. And it's, yeah, it was a very like short audition and a short moment in my life, but I think pivotal in terms of my understanding of what it means to be Japanese Canadian sometimes as a performer and also like the fetishization of of my body as mm. a Japanese woman and as a half Japanese woman like I think that also like the realization that there's there's a the the deep sadness comes from this like underlying understanding that I can game the system and 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 work it to my advantage and lean into that like half Japanese girl fetishization like but that even still like as I get older I'm like what is that what am I doing so it's complex and it takes an emotional toll that I don't think I fully understood was was happening all these years now I think I'm hopefully wiser to it but I can't go back in time and change that moment but I can make the future better and brighter for myself and for the JC um, performers that that I ever have to audition or work with I can vow to never make them feel like some kind of stereotype or tokening Japanese Canadian or or Japanese woman. <laughs> I'm I'm so sorry that happened to you. First of all, uh, it is absolutely not your fault that the systems of theater allow for for that kind of power dynamic, and it's not. It should not be allowed, and it should not be tolerated by anyone. Um, but it's absolutely not your fault to not respond in that moment. That is such a shocking and harmful way to ask an actor to go into themselves. And, and, to, and the fact that I know exactly, I mean, not, not exactly, I don't have the experience as a woman and I never will. Uh, but I know the idea of being asked, can you just be more, can you, can you lean into that? Can you try the accent on? And, and I mean, I'm saved by the fact that I'm terrible at accents, but, <laughs> but, but it, it is, as we're talking about the ecology and the systems that need to shift, I think this is one of the things on top of a lot of people's list is, is recognizing that those systems of power are, are not okay in terms of the structural alignment of the director can ask you to do anything. Mm. Uh, and also to recognize that that inherently has a racial structure to, to perpetuate the story of the colonizer. The fact that you and I recognize what it means to play it, to lean into our Japanese Canadian-ness means to make ourselves smaller, to assimilate in a more calming and fluid manner that allows everyone else to be more comfortable in it. Yeah. And that's not okay. It's not okay. And it, I think the, the, the scary part is that I don't think there was a, an intention to 
be disrespectful, but that's, that's the thing that is most frightening is that this. It's not malicious. It's not malicious, but it's, it's totally like, it's not something that they, that people understand that they're doing in that moment, which is so harmful. Was that deeply woven into the fabric of how we're operating? Mm -hmm. That they're empowered to do something like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, you, I, I, thank you so much for sharing the story. I feel like you've you've had a few. It's stuck with you clearly. Is what would you say to a young Japanese Canadian actor who is asked to lean into their Japanese-ness? I think that it's multi-layered and it also depends on a few things. Depends on who's asking you. It depends on the content of the work and it depends on your own heart and how comfortable you are doing that. There are instances that I have used a Japanese accent where I feel comfortable doing it. And I think I did because it was asked of me from like a mentor within the JC community. And uh, it was a performance for the JC community and the content was internment history. Uh, and so there were, so it's, Long story short, I think that if you are uncomfortable, just say that you're uncomfortable, perhaps. I know that's difficult and terrifying, particularly with these power dynamics that are totally prevalent in every rehearsal hall and space and audition. But I, I hope that people have more empathy these days and people in power have more understanding of the ways that that they ask things of young artists that are not okay. That offering space to the young artist to say no is not going to hurt that director's career. <laughs> <laughs> but proceeding with asking the young artist to do a thing that makes them deeply uncomfortable will potentially affect this young artist's career and to be mindful of that power dynamic. I don't know, do you think that's okay? Can people say, this makes me uncomfortable? We have a problem in the theater ecology if people cannot say openly, this makes me uncomfortable, which is really disappointing. I feel like it is. It, it's no longer the exception when someone is that attuned to the room. I felt, I feel like there was a time when, even when I was in the room, when a director was that conscious of that level of uncomfort and that degree and that, that permission, I, I think I would even go to the point of like being like, Oh, they're ex they're, they're kind of sensitive. Like we don't need that level of sensitivity. Right. And that was, that was kind of the exception. And now it's starting to become like, it's, it's so much more in the spotlight that if someone isn't that attuned, when there is a problem, when someone's uncomfortable and the person who has been put in power can't recognize it, we all see it now. 
And that resonates in, in a way that I don't feel like did when we when mm -hmm. I was an emerging artist. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I think that's a great offer to the next generation. And and as you spoke about, was is part of the excitement of this next generation. Yes, is they feel like they're ready and and understand that they should be treated with that level of sensitivity and and care. Mm -hmm. You know, we're really asking people to to open up to the softest parts of themselves, to, the, to those deep, as you say, you're, you're, they have there's such potential to affect one another in, these, in, these, in this ecology. Yeah. Let's take care of each other. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious. I can't help but ask the question. Yes. To your incredibly emotionally intelligent 12-year-old self, <laughs> who is chosen to call herself Tara. What, I mean, knowing that hindsight is twenty twenty, and knowing that in a few years she'll be able to reassess, what piece of advice would you give Tara Bancroft? Mm. I would say to do the scary things and to keep doing the scary things, because if you're going to be an actor, you're going to have to do scary things for the rest of your life. And there's so much rejection and disappointment, but it gets a lot easier. If perhaps I had built a thicker skin when I was younger, oh, even that is like, do I really want to say that to my 10-year-old self? Maybe that's too harsh. <laughs> I'm an old artist now and I'm becoming <laughs> rough. <laughs> um, I guess... Uh, don't fear failure because there's success in failure. You get to learn so much and, and keep going because there are like always hurdles and it's going to be a tough, long road. But stay true to, to what you believe in and what you want to do. And, and, and eventually, I think the world will be ready to hear your voice when you're ready to give it. That's beautiful. <laughs> and, I, and I honestly believe 12-year-old Yoshie would be ready for that. Where 12-year-old Kunji would be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, with that hindsight, my, my, kind of my final question for you is, what are the scary things for you right now? Scary things are a lot to do with this stall in work um, with COVID-19, it's hard to, to know what the future holds um, and what the future of theater looks like. I think that I have a lot of hopes for, for how things might change in the future, but will the world with the pandemic be ready to host theater? Um, I, Maybe this is the moment where we really, we not only reimagine creation in a decolonized setting, but we imagine performance in different and new ways. If audiences are smaller, if they need to be spaced out, if, if performance needs to happen in open spaces where you have air circulation, um, bit of a scary future for us yeah 
Yeah, it's I feel like there's a lot of fight right now for a better future, but will there even be that future, you know? And that's mm. the thing that's like, oh gosh, like like where are the priorities in our lives and in our artistic practices and our work? Like I think the pandemic has shown that art is very important when people feel lost or grief or sadness or loneliness or the need to escape they turn to art they turn to movies and books and poetry and music um so it's it's this moment that i think collectively we realize how important it is and how valuable it is to people but then again if the world is on fire global warming and if do we continue to make art or do we take care of the earth or can it be both simultaneously? What's the answer? I don't know. We have to rethink. <laughs> I have to rethink. <laughs> I don't know if we have an answer, but those are big, beautiful questions. Mm -hmm. In the word of my pal, Makambe K. Samamba, theater can heal the country. And I absolutely believe that. Mm -hmm. and it's big and it's scary but let's keep doing the scary things that's something 12 year old Yoshie told me oh. <laughs> it's great advice it really Gosh, is I should take my own advice <laughs> uh, radical self-forgiveness yes yes mm. <laughs> I, I think that's it for us here today. Thanks so much, Yoshie. Thank you, Gunji. Thanks for having nice. me. Uh, pleasure. I'm so glad it worked out. Yeah, me too. And thank you, dear listener, for spending some more time with us here at Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, Stories from the Stage. My name is Kunji Ikeda, and I am honored to host this series in collaboration with the Nikkei National Museum and Cultural Center who also played host to an early version of The Japanese Problem, the creation by today's guest, Yoshie Bancroft. For more information, you can check out yoshiebancroft.com. If you're enjoying the series, we would love if you could leave a comment to rate and subscribe, or to share it with a friend. Let's continue to share thoughts, ideas, and care for one another. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.